Hello, this is Todd O'Brien, your host, and welcome to Evolve the Entrepreneur Mindset. My name is Chris Yeh. My superpower is sounding reasonable. And I'm feeling busy as the end of the year approaches. today is an amazing entrepreneurial business leader, author, and the co-founder of Global Scaling Academy. He co-wrote Blitz Scaling with his close friend, Reed Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn and an investor at Greylock Partners. He brings a unique point of view while giving massive value to startups, corporates, VCs, and policymakers. He went to Stanford and Harvard Business School, and is very well known and respected in Silicon Valley, where he resides. Please welcome to the show, Chris Yeh. Chris, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. You're friends with Reed Hoffman, best known for co-founding LinkedIn. How did you guys meet and what's the single greatest learning that you've gleaned from that relationship? It's an excellent question. So Reed and I met back when he was starting LinkedIn. I'd known of him earlier because he had been one of the founding board members and later an important executive at PayPal. Mm. And I knew a number of the folks from the PayPal team back from when I was an undergraduate at Stanford. Reed and I are five years apart, so we never actually overlapped at Stanford, but we did many similar things. And when LinkedIn first started, it really reflected something that I thought the world needed. I'm a believer in networks, big believer in relationships. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Here's a way that's going to help people like me who like to connect with other people really develop and maintain relationships. And when I saw that the founders of the company were Stanford alumni, I just reached out to them and started giving them unsolicited advice. And the first time I met Reed in person actually was when I set up an event through the Harvard Business School Alumni Association uh, for Reed to talk to our alumni about why they should join LinkedIn. You can imagine this was a long time ago because this is a point in time when Harvard Business School alumni had to be convinced to join LinkedIn as opposed to something that they all belong to. And we got to know each other then, stayed in touch ever since, and got the opportunity to start working with him on these books back in 2012. What is the single greatest learning that you've gleaned from that relationship? It's tough for me to condense it down to a single learning. So I'm going to go with two because I think these two work together very neatly. Right. The first learning is that you should think big. And I think that for many of us in life, when we think about what we want to achieve, we try to be as realistic as possible. We try to scope things down. And that is absolutely a useful thing to do when you're trying to get something done. But Reed's point is you have to start off by asking yourself, how could we make this even bigger? How could we make this even more impactful? And asking those mind expanding questions really helps you, even if in the end you decide to scope things down in order to make things more achievable. The second element of it is something that I've seen Reed put to work coming off stage or in everything that he does, which is he's always asking people, what could I have done better? Now, obviously Reed is an enormously accomplished person who has done more in his lifetime than pretty much almost anyone can expect to do. And yet every time he comes off stage, every time we write a book, every time he does something, he always asks the smart people around him, what could I have done better? And the reason he asks it that way is if he asks, how did that go? People are going to say, yeah, great, fantastic. That was awesome. But by saying, what could I have done better? It gives people permission to say, yes, it was great. 
but here is what I think could have been done better. And that's the way you actually get feedback. It's great learning. I really appreciate that. You co-wrote this book with uh, with Reed called Blitzscaling, and it's been wildly popular and much discussed, as I'm sure you're well aware of. And then you co-founded Global Scaling Academy with uh, Jeff Abbott, another friend of yours. What's behind that journey? I'm really curious just to understand how this all got started. So it all began when Reed and I were trying to figure out what we were going to write about for a second book. We had previously done a book called The Alliance with our friend Ben Kaznoka, which is all about management and the relationships between managers and employees. We had gotten that book out of the marketplace. It was successful. And we we're thinking, well, it's time to write another book. And the question was, what is a topic that we can really sink our teeth into that we think we can make an original contribution? And we started considering this back around 2015, 2016. The reason is that the Alliance came out in 2014. It took about a year to really process through that book. At that time, we were just entering into the unicorn era. There was a lot of discussion of startups and how quickly they'd grown or what was happening in Silicon Valley. And it struck us that people were talking about the wrong things. They were talking about how important it was to build a startup ecosystem. And then we're talking about what you have to do to build a scale up. How do you actually grow something from the garage into a global giant? And so we felt like this is an opportunity for us to really say something that hasn't been said and contribute to the corpus of knowledge in the world. Wow. I hadn't heard the story as it actually started. And it's interesting to hear you talk about that. And I wonder, as you were preparing for that, what was really going through your mind to kind of come to this particular subject of scale and is where the market was going, I think probably even uh, a little bit ahead of its time. So I'm just kind of wondering, was there some ideation behind this? Was it just something that had come top to mind because of the types of customers you've been talking to or, or where did that come from? The way it played out, which may not have been the absolute most efficient way, but I think did produce a good result is that we started off by asking ourselves the very practical question, what are the ways that you run a company if you want to achieve this kind of scale? And we divided up a company into all the different functions. So people, marketing, sales, Hmm. technology, operations, and so on and so forth. And we basically tried to figure out, well, what are the things you do differently along the way? And as we wrote this up, we, in our minds, put it together as sort of a playbook or handbook to creating a scale-up. And we produced this, and we actually then taught a class at Stanford based on this text that we'd written around the playbook for scaling. And what we discovered from teaching that class at Stanford and from the conversations with other people who read the draft is that people didn't understand why it was so important to scale and what was different about this kind of scale. And so by going through the process of actually figuring out the practical side of how do you do this, we got led around to the question of, well, why is this important? And can you tell us more about how this actually happens? And so that's how blitzscaling came about. As we went through this process of looking at scale, we said, well, what is the reason why this is so important? How do we explain the framework into which this can fit? Wow. Thanks for that. You know, this podcast is about the entrepreneur mindset. There's not a ton of talk about this. And typically you you hear great podcasts on tips and tricks for entrepreneurs, or you hear about people's successes or things like this. But this podcast is really to dive deep into the mindset behind the entrepreneur. You know, you deal with a lot of entrepreneurs yourself and scale-ups and different types of founders. How important has it been for you to have the right mindset in your own journey? Absolutely. When it comes to the entrepreneurial mindset, 
people ask me the question, what are the characteristics that a successful entrepreneur needs to have, especially if they're going to blitz scale? And I mentioned three different things that they need to do. The first is to have a strong orientation towards learning. And that's because when it comes to scaling, especially blitz scaling, things are changing quickly. And what it means is that as your company grows, it's effectively becoming a different company at each stage. And there are multiple times when the game you're playing changes. And as a result, you have to put on your hat as a learner to figure out what the new rules are before you can decide how you're going to leverage those rules to achieve success. So a big part of it is always understanding that you've never reached the point where you know it all. You're always trying to learn from others. And you can see an echo of that in Reed saying, hey, what could I do better? What else should I know about that I don't know about already? Because it doesn't matter how accomplished and smart you are. You can always learn more. The second element of it is really understanding that entrepreneurship is a team sport. It's not something where you as an individual can somehow manage to succeed and build a global business giant all on your own. There's no such thing as a one person, hundred billion dollar company. So at the base of it, you've got to build a network around you. And that's the network of people inside your company and your teammates, your fellow co-founders and early employees, but ultimately it's about the network around you. It could be the investors you bring in. It could be the peers and friends you turn to for advice. No man is an island. No woman is an island. And you have to go ahead and build the kind of network that will sustain you as you go through this scaling journey. The final thing you need to do is you need to have the ability to embrace the chaos, to understand that you have to have a strong conviction that's loosely held. You need to always have a plan and know what you're doing, but you also need to acknowledge that the facts on the ground could change that plan at any time. And so the delicate balance of having a real direction and having real persistence while at the same time being able to adapt rapidly as new evidence comes in, that's one of the hallmarks of the entrepreneurial mindset. You spend a lot of time in London. I spend a lot of time in London. I was just there and I was interviewing several people and one of the people that I interviewed was this guy named Lawrence who owns a company called Pagegen. This guy is taking our human footsteps and turning them into energy. What do we think the city of New York could generate with all of the walking that what New Yorkers could they, do? Could, could they light up all Times New Square? York. I'd have to say yes. I mean, it's incredible. We need we need one of these in the Austin airport. We need one. For as much as yeah. we're traveling, this needs to be in every airport in the world. So go check them out, pavegen.com. Connecting people to places. I like that. It's their tagline. We should just create a commercial for them. Oh, wait, we just did. Oh, that's what's happening. Okay. <laughs> You spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs, you know, helping them scale and so forth. But I wonder if we could just strip all of that away for a minute. Like let's strip away the funding, the MVPs, the hiring teams, everything that entrepreneurs go through, which is a lot. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're just not feeling it. And there's something about that tenacity. There's something about setting an intention, you know, every day as an entrepreneur. And I just wonder how this has played out in your own journey. What does Chris think in the morning when he's having a bad morning and how do you set intentions for yourself and and make yourself do what you do? Yeah. And it's tough because I often tell people that being a CEO is the worst job in the world if you're caring and responsible. 
Yeah. If on the other hand, you're a sociopath, it's the best job in the world. <laughs> just tell people what to do. You don't care what happens. There you go. But let's assume for the sake of argument that your listeners are caring and responsible individuals. You know, the thing that I know when I get up in the morning and that, that you know as an entrepreneur that you don't know if you've just spent your life in the corporate world is that stuff only happens if you do it. In the corporate world, you can sort of say things by default are going to work out. Stuff is going to happen. I'm going to play my role. And so if you don't feel particularly good that day, you can say, well, I'm just going to go into the office and go through the motions and somehow it's going to work out because the default is this company is going to continue along. General Electric is not going away tomorrow if I don't feel like going to the office today. But if you're an entrepreneur, it's very different. It's on you and things are only going to happen if you or your team actually make it happen. And by default, your startup is going to die. And so as a result, when you wake up in the morning, you think, I don't know if I have it. and I don't know if I feel like going out there. You think to yourself, this is all about whether or not we're going to live or die. It truly is a matter of life and death. And the only way we're going to survive is if I and the rest of the team go out and make something happen. And on the one hand, for some people, that may be too much pressure. Maybe they wake up in the morning and they feel that and they're like, I don't like this feeling. I got to give up this life. And that's fine. Not everyone in this world should be an entrepreneur. The ones who should be an entrepreneur are the ones who wake up in the morning, feel the down and the dumbs, feel the blahs, but think to themselves, I really want this to exist. And it's only going to exist if I make it exist. So I've got to just go ahead and pull the, pull the, the strap on my helmet and go out there and make it happen. You know, it's a really interesting point that you make. Um, it, it makes me think a lot, too, just about like the personal values um, that entrepreneurs hold. You know, founders and product creators, they're, they're really inspiring when you kind of watch them in their own element and what they're doing. And I'm just really curious to, to understand how, how you've maybe seen true core personal values in entrepreneurs really show up in their work. Well, I'll give you a great example. Uh, there's an entrepreneur who I'm advising. He has a company called You Can Event. Okay. And what they do is they provide a marketplace for events. So basically, if somebody here in the Bay Area wants to put on a fireside chat or some sort of event for their partners or something like that, they can go to You Can Event and they can find a venue and then based on the venue, the catering and the various services they need, everything in one place to make the event happen. And You Can Event takes a small piece of the transaction in order to make money, like a typical marketplace. But it's not about the company. It's about the entrepreneur, Antonio, who created the company. And Antonio is from Portugal. He came here to Silicon Valley two years ago with no money, no connections, and just the desire to build a company. And when he came here, and this is an absolutely true story, he was so intent on making the company successful that before he came here, he got the company's name and logo and motto tattooed on his arm. <laughs> And this is not the only entrepreneur I know who has tattooed their values on their arm. Yeah. The folks from the Unreasonable Group, a social impact group that I do a lot of work with, have many people in the organization who completely voluntarily, we swear it's not a cult, have gotten the tattoo of the company logo on their arm. Mm. And it's that kind of dedication, that kind of feeling of, you know what, I believe in this so much that I am going to go ahead and get a tattoo on my body that can never be removed because this matters. Even if it fails, I will be proud that I have this on my arm. Yeah. That's the kind of founder dedication that really inspires me. 
Yeah. I wonder if somebody who had, you know, blockbuster tattooed on their right arm, maybe then had Netflix on their left arm. (laughs) The funny thing story, as you know, is that blockbuster actually had the opportunity to buy Netflix. So Reed Hastings went to blockbuster and through Shelley Archambault, uh, actually made the proposal that the two companies merge or that Blockbuster buy Netflix and Blockbuster refused. Wow. That'd be a wholly different company now, wouldn't it? <laughs> very, very different. Wow. It's really cool to kind of hear you talk about this. And when you talk to corporates, you hear a lot about emotional intelligence and self-awareness and how these these qualities are super important. And I think they're just as equally or even more important for an entrepreneur. And I just wonder how, you know, self-awareness has maybe shown up for you in your journey along the way. Well, I'm a huge believer in self-awareness. I think self-awareness, by the way, is largely a subset of a broader principle, which is to acknowledge reality. And this is tough because a lot of entrepreneurs derive some of their power from their ability to deny reality, to have a reality distortion field, a la the late great Steve Jobs. But at the end of the day, you ought to know what is actually happening. And that's true for the world out there. And it's true for your awareness of yourself. And so I think self-awareness is a subset of that knowledge of reality. Now, one of the things that's been very important for me in my career is to have that self-awareness. And again, everyone's got to be different. Uh, I remember one of my friends who was a venture capitalist once asked me, you know, Chris, do you ever worry that you're going to be hampered as you go about your career? Because there's all these entrepreneurs out there who are running around beating their chest, talking about how awesome they are. They're killing it. They're crushing it. They're doing all these things. And you go and you say, feel like we're doing well. We've got these metrics, which indicate that we're on a good track to success. Of course, most companies fail, but we feel good about our chances. And he said, you know, are you hampered by that? And my response was, no, I don't think so. I think in the long run, the knowledge that I am self-aware and the knowledge that I do believe in reality and I'm not fooling myself, I'm not smoking my own dope, Mm. will help me get the right kinds of people on board with whatever company I'm building or whatever movement I'm trying to put out there. So I think that self-awareness is a great long-term value, even though there can be some short-term issues because you won't sound as confident as someone who is just blithely believing that they will succeed no matter what. But you know what? I think that it ultimately boils down to what kind of person do you want to be? I want to be the kind of person who is realistic at all times. It's incredible to hear you talk about this because I also work with a lot of entrepreneurs and there's so many times where some of them are truly not self-aware of even how they're coming across to investors, how they're coming across to other people. And so it's a huge quality. You're right. I love the way you put it. It's a long-term value, even though there's sort of these uh, short-term gains, right? So I, I really like that concept. I appreciate you bringing that to the table. You've been influential to a lot of people, and I wonder who inspires you and influences you. So there are a number of people who I cite as being an influence, and that's both inside the business world and outside the business world. And in our book, The Alliance, Reed and Ben Kaznoka and I actually have an exercise that talks about who are the people who are your heroes and what are the reasons why they're your heroes. And that's a good way to figure out what your values are. And I cited a number of different examples in my part of the book where I talk about this. And the three people I picked were 
Abraham Lincoln, David Packard, and Fred Rogers. Hmm. Oddly enough, Fred Rogers having this resurgence with a Tom Hanks movie coming out. And I feel like one of the things that really matters to me in these heroes is they embody certain things that I would want to be. I don't always manage to get all the way there. I will fall short. I will be imperfect. But they represent the kinds of values that really matter. Abraham Lincoln is somebody who believed in the primacy of talent. He got the best people on his team, even those those people were folks who were his rivals before or had even insulted him in the past. And his goal was just, I want to save the union and I'm going to get the people who are most able to make that happen, regardless of my personal feelings for them or their personal feelings for me. And that dedication to the mission and that belief in the primacy of talent is one of those values that really resonates with me. For David Packard, who of course is one of the legendary co-founders of Hewlett Packard, it's the notion that business is not something where you check your values and ethics at the door. And Hewlett Packard, the old Hewlett Packard, was known for being the kind of place where people cared and where David Packard and Bill Hewlett really wanted to build the kind of place they'd be proud of and that people would be proud of working. And so they had things like management by walking around. They had the principle of really trusting people and empowering them. And I've always admired what they built. And I've often thought that one of the problems that has overtaken Silicon Valley is as people turned from looking at David Packard and Bill Hewlett and saying, how can we be like Bill and Dave to asking themselves, how can I be like Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs is undoubtedly one of the greatest businessmen and leaders of all time, but also not someone I would hold up as a paragon of virtue that you should try to emulate. And then the final person, of course, is Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, to a generation of people like myself who grew up watching him. And with Fred Rogers, we see the power of kindness, of acceptance, of not, again, Mr. Rogers was not weak. Mr. Rogers is very strong. And what he was willing to do is to have that realism about the world. He didn't shy away from talking about things like death or assassination. He made a public service announcement after 9-11. But he was still able to, despite having this clear-eyed view of the world, emphasize here is where you are in the world. And here is why you are important. And here is why you are special. So those are some of the things that I really feel strongly about. Those are great examples, Chris, and really thank you for your openness and just for sharing all the stuff that you have. It's like so important for founders, entrepreneurs, people who are aspiring to do this in the future too, just to hear this and to really understand that. So I appreciate you bringing all that today and just really thank you for joining me today. It was my pleasure. Uh, again, my personal mission is to help interesting people do interesting things. And I hope that the people who are out there listening feel like they've gotten a little help and they're going to go out there and do some interesting things and make the world a better place. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you, Todd. 